Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Amen. Open up to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And let's stand for the reading of God's word. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Jesus, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. Have you heard of a book by Rod Dreher? entitled The Benedict Option. Um, I have to be honest, the first time I heard the title, I thought he was talking about a different Benedict, and uh, it applies, Benedict Arnold, but um, that's not the Benedict he's speaking of. The book is called The Benedict Option, a strategy for Christians in a post-Christian Christian nation. Um, Dreyer's book is, I mean, it's currently being talked about by many, reviewed by many that we know, and sits on the New York Times bestseller list. Um, The book is an attempt to formulate a concrete plan for the church in, as he puts it, a post-Christian nation and a post-Christian culture. Here's his thesis. Americans cannot stand to contemplate defeat or to accept limits of any kind. But American Christians are going to have to come to terms with the brute fact that we live in a culture, one in which our beliefs make increasingly little sense. We speak a language that the world more and more either cannot hear or finds offensive to its ears. Could it be that the best way to fight the flood is to dot, 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 stop fighting the flood. That is, to quit piling up sandbags and to build an ark in which to shelter until the water recedes and we can put our feet on dry land again. Rather than wasting communities, wasting institutions, wasting networks of resistance that can outwit, outlast, and eventually overcome the occupation, Fear not, he says, fear not. We have been in a place like this before. 
I would say, when haven't we been in a place like that? In the first centuries of Christianity, the early church survived and grew under Roman persecution and later after the collapse of the empire in the West. We latter-day Christians must learn from their example and particularly from the example of St. Benedict. St. Benedict. Okay. Now, who's St. Benedict, you asked? St. Benedict is understood to be the man who began the monastic movement in the 6th century. Um, and monasticism, in a nutshell, can be understood as, as a withdrawal from pagan culture in order to form an insular and separate Christian culture in small communities. Uh, monasteries were, were separate cultural pockets of Christian culture. Right where ritual, prayer, and work were meant to bring a man closer to God. Um, if you've spent any time in the, the works of the early reformers, like Luther and Calvin, others, you know that monasticism represented for them the worst part of Roman Catholic abuses. What it did is it created a divide between upper-class and lower-class Christians. The normally spiritual and the super-spiritual. Right? And it undergirded a view of salvation that was by, was, was by works and not by grace alone. That's, that's, what it was put, I, that's what it supported. Salvation not by grace, but by works. So to hear a man suggest something associated with the originator of that system, and now to hear many evangelical and Reformed Christians praising such a program is troubling, to say the least. What, what do I think is wrong with Dreyer's desire to see Christians withdraw from society to form separated pockets where Christian culture can exist. Well, what do I see that's wrong about that? The reason it is a disastrous proposal is because it flies first in the face of Scripture's commands. Right? Be salt and light. Be in the world, but not of the world. Right? And our passage this morning. And also that it assumes something that is drastically wrong. Dreyer assumes this. And his whole, his whole program assumes this, or it cannot work. That our state will leave us alone. That our state won't overreach. That our state will leave us alone in those communities that we go to withdraw and create as Christian communities. But the first century should be a lesson to us. Right? Benedict wasn't until the 6th century. So Dreher is being a little bit uh, anachronistic here by applying the 6th century to the 1st century. But the 1st century was very different. 1st century should be a lesson to us. An overreaching, progressive idolatrous state does not leave Christianity alone. 
One may set up shop for a while in a separate community until one refuses to honor the emperor as God. And as soon as that cat's out of the bag, the emperor comes and destroys you. Today, it's not emperors as gods, but it is laws which disallow blaspheming the godless forms of sexual immorality today. I would call them the goddess of sexual freedom, right? The Supreme Court's decision, think of this, the Supreme Court's decision, not in Obergefell, but in United States versus Windsor. This is the ruling that preceded Obergefell, and it struck down in all the states all the defense of marriage acts that had been put in place. That decision was not so much an affirmation of same-sex marriage as it was a declaration of what views will be unacceptable in our country, right? It defined the new blasphemy laws. It defined the God that would be served and the blasphemy laws that would be put in place, okay? Antonin Scalia understood this. And wrote this in his dissenting opinion. Listen to this. To be sure, as the majority points out, the legislation is called the Defense of Marriage Act. But to defend traditional marriage is not to condemn, demean, or humiliate those who would prefer other arrangements any more than to defend the Constitution of the United States is to condemn, demean, or humiliate other constitutions. To hurl such accusations so casually demeans this institution. In this majority's judgment, any resistance to its holding is beyond the pale of reasoned disagreement. To question its high-handed invalidation of a presumptively valid statute is to act, the majority is sure, with the purpose to disparage, injure, degrade, demean, and humiliate our fellow human beings, our fellow citizens, who are homosexual. All that simply for supporting an act that did no more than codify an aspect of marriage that had been unquestioned in our society for most of its existence, indeed, had been unquestioned in virtually all societies for virtually all of human history. It is one thing for a society to elect change. Now, this is, the, this is his point. Listen to this. It's one thing for a society to elect change. It is another for a court of law to impose change by adjudging those who oppose it hostess, humani, generous, enemies of the human race. You see what he's saying there? You see what he's saying there? He he says, look, it's one thing for the court to make changes. That's what we do all the time. It's another thing when the court determines the people who are enemies of the human race for holding certain views. And that's what he's saying these judgments have done. And so, dear brothers and sisters, just like those first century Christians who refused to have Caesar as king, claiming only one king, Jesus Christ, the state state then declared them atheists and traitors and then went into their communities, no matter how far out in the middle of nowhere they set up and punished them, and killed them. That's what happened in the first century. 
So this from Workman's Persecution of the Early Church. By Roman theory, the state was the one society which must engross every interest of its subjects. Religious, social, political, humanitarian, with the one possible exception of family. And we've now added that one to the list. There was no room in Roman law for the existence, much less the development on its own lines of organic growth, of any corporation or society which did not recognize itself from the first as an auxiliary of the state. State primary, everything else underneath the state. The state was all and in all the one organism with a life of its own. Such a theory, the church as the living kingdom of Jesus could not possibly accept either in the first century or in the 21st century. Remember Polycarp, who could have have lived if he had just bowed the knee to Caesar as God. And you see, the proconsul was not willing to have his gospel competition. He didn't want Polycarp's gospel competition with his God, the state. He was not interested in a free exchange of ideas. He was not interested at all in liberty and freedom of conscience. And the blood of Polycarp is spilled, as he says, 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And had Polycarp read Rod Dreher's book, it would have simply meant the proconsul had to take a trip out into the countryside to pluck him from his little Christian enclave. A little inconvenience it would have led to for an overreaching, idolatrous, blasphemous state. C.S. Lewis said something like this, the state tells us that we may have our religion in private and then they make sure we are never alone. Then a few days ago, I read something like this uh, from the conservative guys in the PCA. These are the best guys. And I wonder if they are just saying the same thing as Rod Dreher in a slightly more cloaked and Presbyterian manner. David Strain, who is the pastor of the historical First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi, One of the flagship congregations of the PCA writes this on the Gospel Reformation Network blog. He says, while the church can indeed have an effect on culture, especially when its counter-cultural witness is clear and strong, nevertheless, transforming the culture is beyond both the church's calling and the church's ability. We cannot bring in the kingdom, much less may we participate here and now in the final renewal of all things. No, this side of the new creation, the church must act modestly with reference to the institutions of society. Our business is not with them. Our business is to gather in the elect of God and by the word and spirit to ready them for the world to come. This is not at all the council Christian withdrawal from cultural engagement. 
Let us go about our callings, working at whatever we do with all our might, not as eye servants or man pleasers, but as for the Lord. Let us fulfill our vocations with zeal for the good of our fellow image bearers, loving our neighbors in Jesus' name. But let's set our sights on the true goal of the church's mission, not, the make, not making the world a better place. God alone will do that one day but the exaltation of Jesus Christ by making disciples of all the nations. Now, a few things stand out to me in that statement. First, that the institution, the institutions of our society is not the church's business, it said. The institutions of our society is not the church's business. That is simply not true. Scripture makes the institutions of the world our business, right? Romans 13 makes the institutions of the world the church's business. 1 Timothy 2 makes the institutions of the world the church's business. If God delegates the authority that operates in those institutions and the word of God limits and defines those powers and the church is to preach the full counsel of the word of God, then the church must always remind the state to be the state as God has defined her. In other words, the state is our responsibility as the pillar and foundation of the truth. If scripture didn't speak to the institutions of the world, then maybe the church could have nothing to do with the institutions of the world. But the scriptures do speak about the institutions of the world. And second, he says that the true mission of the church is not making the world a better place, but the exaltation of Jesus Christ by making disciples of all the nations. Now that's a false dichotomy. It is inevitably true that a nation that has God as its Lord is what? Blessed. And his word says, I mean, it's blessed, as his word says, because of the exalting of Jesus, the making of disciples, and the influencing of the church are possible in that context. So Rod Dreher tells us to withdraw and start communes, and Presbyterians tell us to withdraw into the walls of the church. Presbyterians go into a soundproof booth with a megaphone. And hope that somebody on the outside just might hear one little inkling of the gospel that leaks through the, the, uh, the screw hole they forgot to cover in soundproof. And God's word in 1 Timothy 2 tells us that prayer should be made for all in authority so that, so that, right? So that what? We're hanging on the edge, right? So that what? So that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Pray for the institutions of the world that they may, insofar as they have influence, give us a safe, quiet peaceful, tranquil space in which we can worship God. And we're not supposed to be concerned with the institutions of the world. So let's not be naive about the desired results of such prayer to God. Doesn't a tranquil and quiet life necessitate 
a certain kind of culture around us? Does it not necessitate a certain kind of culture? Does that not require respect for God and his authority? Does that not require a Christian culture? If we make bold statements that the institutions of the world are not our business and that we should not be concerned about making the world a better place, then we have ceded all the ground to the devil, the prince of the power of the air, and what we, will ha- what will we, what we won't have, what we could not possibly have at the end of the day, What your children and your children's children will not have is an ability to lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Just last night, in a Muslim nation, 32 Christians are blown to bits in their sanctuary. You think they're praying to God that they might lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity? And do you know that that probably means that they want that that nation to turn to God and so that that nation is, is honoring God and so that God gives them a culture in which they can worship their God, the one true living God. And yet we're, we're just, we're so fat and happy. That the persecution when it comes will just, slam into us when we've got our back turned. Have we forgotten that Jesus said, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters? We do not withdraw from our context and hope that an idolatrous state leaves us alone. Rather, we go forward. We remind the state to be the state, and we pray for them, and we don't just pray that they would leave us alone. We don't just pray that they would leave us alone. Lord, keep, keep a space between us and the institutions of the world. Right? We pray that they would honor what is honorable, and they would punish what is evil. That's what we pray. And who decides what's honorable and who decides what's evil? God alone. We pray that they would understand that all law, all morality, all good, all evil is derived from the one lawgiver, God Almighty. And that knowing this, it would lead to a context in which the Christian worldview may peacefully, tranquilly, and in strength exist. Right? Some think it's strange that I went and preached in the state house a few years ago. Some think it a betrayal of my calling as a minister of the gospel to tell the state that killing babies is immoral. But that work has a much, I mean, think of it, brothers and sisters, that work has a much larger goal of coalescing into a prayer to God for all who are in authority. 
that he would give us leaders who protect us, who, who protect us, who protect a culture where godliness is not outlawed. That we may live in a land where Christians are not viewed as enemies of the human race. Silence and withdrawal is not the way to ensure this. Not caring whether the state is a servant of God is not Christian. Do you get that? Not caring that God has said in Romans 13 that the state is a minister of God to do his will. Dismissing that is blasphemy. And when you say that the institutions of this world are not our business, that is what you're saying. And it is not, and in the end, this is where it hits my heart, this is not compassion for your own children. And look, look at where our passage goes. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now think about the context of this passage. The Holy Spirit is telling us to pray to God for all of those who are in authority, that they may cultivate and protect a culture in which Christian witness is allowable, and the ultimate good of a Christian culture, a Christian nation, a Christ-honoring authority, is that it allows the very gospel to be preached. It allows a space where the gospel can be, sp- can be preached. And so, I mean, my point right now is not to think through how the desires of God fit together with his eternal election What in that statement. That's not the context here. They do fit together. But rather put verse 3 and 4 into the context of the prayers being made for those in authority over us. Those in authority who bear the sword and who exist by God's will for the protection and yes, the promotion of law-keeping and godliness of a culture. If we say withdraw, if we say our business is not with the institutions of the world, then our prayers will be transformed. I mean, instead of praying as our passage commends, that entreaties and prayers, petitions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that as far as it depends upon them, we as Christians may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity and fulfill our witness to the nations. If instead of praying that way and for that purpose, we withdraw and dismiss as not our business the institutions of the world, guess what will evaporate? a godly authority over us. And then what will evaporate? A context in which the, the Christian witness is even lawful. And then what will evaporate in the land? The church and the gospel. And then what will evaporate? Our very desire to desire the desires of God will be so weighed down with persecution and every sort of distress that we will cease desiring that all men know Jesus Christ. I mean, that's astonishing in this passage that it says that God desires that all come to a knowledge. The church is the pillar and foundation of the, tr- the truth. 
Therefore, the church has a responsibility to speak into every corner of every culture. The state, our institutions, and all men with authority, all those authorities that derive from God himself, they can only properly know what is required of them if the church is telling them what God's word says. If we withdraw, if we cease praying for, if we disregard these authorities, their corrupted power will corrupt even more and corrupted power will be used by the devil to silence the church, to silence our witness, to destroy our children and to condemn souls to hell. This is not love for the authorities God has given to us. This is not giving thanks for what God has set in place. Love is to pray for them. And love is to speak to them. Right? Speak to them the word of God. Love for God is to desire a culture, a context in which he is honored and his law is honored. Right? Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen for his inheritance. So then, let us love our children, let us love our nation, let us love our neighbors, love the authorities he has placed over us. Let us love our culture, let us love our future, let us love the Lord, let us love peace, tranquility, evangelism. Let us love our witness by praying for all those in authority that they may fear God and not forget his law. Right, that we may be blessed as a nation whose God is Yahweh. And remember this, we pray. Remember this, you few Christians. We pray to an omnipotent God. Perhaps that might inform our approach, right? Pray to an omnipotent God and get up and move forward and remind the state to be the state and get into the works, get caught up in the machinery. But the last thing that Christians should do is withdraw and condemn the nations to hell. Let's pray. Father, we pray We do pray that you would bless richly our president, our congressmen, our senators, our governor, our local legislators, our state senators, state representatives, Father, the policemen, the police forces, our military, our the the commanders of the the various armed forces. Father, we pray and we give thanks to you for them, first of all. We thank you that you have uh, put authority over us and that it is a picture of your fatherhood, the the, the authority that's over all things. And Father, we do pray that those I've mentioned would hear your word, that they would learn of their duty from your word. 
And that would lead to this space that we could live in where we can worship you, where we can lead our neighbors to Christ, where we can, we can proclaim that homosexuality is an abomination before your eyes and we can draw people to freedom in Christ. Oh God, give us rulers who will protect our conscience, our witness, our culture. Lord, I pray that in, in so doing, we would make a disciple of this nation. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.